You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Eric Hansen's short fiction has appeared in McSweeney's, The Atlantic, The Paris Review, National Geographic Hemispheres, The Smithsonian. He's the author of A Book of Ages. His new book from Tartarus Press is What I Was Afraid of. Thank you for joining me, Eric. Thank you. Yeah, I should I should clarify. Yeah, my fiction has appeared in I, I write fiction and nonfiction. Oh, the yes, uh, yes. the thing that appeared in the Atlantic was my last book, which was nonfiction. Okay. Um, and uh, my fiction has appeared in let me think, McSweeney's, and uh, the New York Tyrant, and the Lifted Brow, and Torpedo, which are both in Melbourne, where I've never been. So uh, they must like my stories in Melbourne. You know, when I read this book, it brought me back to. One of the first, uh, my uh, as a young reader, I wasn't very interested in the horror genre. But one time I was taking a class, this was in college, and I read the first book that truly terrified me, which was Jean-Paul Sartre's Nausea. Hmm. And it, it, it strikes me that your work shares a great deal of, of simpatico with Sartre's work. Um, we have to get near to the end of of the stories in the, in this book before the word existentialism comes up. But existential horror is a is a really unique kind of horror because it doesn't involve necessarily the fear of you know having somebody attack you or encountering a monster or even you know having bad luck. It's the fear of the process of thinking itself. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And I think that your works capture this, and also capture as well uh, the the logic of dreams, and that dreams can always be scary because in a dream you're not really in control of your own thoughts. And this brings to mind the first story, Mister Pillbeam. Um, mm-hmm. I'd like you to talk about, you know, when you sit down to write a story like Mr. Pillbeam, there's two things that happen for us as the reader. It's the prose and the way you present the story itself is rather surreal and dreamlike. Talk about creating the prose and is there something like some creature in your brain that's lurking behind the prose or are you just putting down the words and and letting them happen on the page. Yeah, the thing about that story, I mean, it kind of expresses the something I talk about in the title essay too, which is, mm-hmm. you know, realizing that there was something to be afraid of in the my parents' peers. Mm-hmm. Not afraid of my parents per se. They were wonderful and protected me. But they're, the grown-ups in the world were could be kind of scary, and that was kind of the premise of that story. When I was writing that story, the device I tried to use 
was that I tried to change the subject every few sentences so that I wouldn't get into a long paragraph. I wouldn't get into something that that I, I wanted to, to keep it moving. And it was a useful device. And I, I think I used it, probably you've used it in some of the other stories in the collection. Um, and that, you know, the representation of the of the of the grown up that's kind of scary is, you know, the man in the in the gabardine overcoat, the man in the raincoat with the with the hat, the man who is a stranger walking along the street or in this case, hiding, you know, out behind the the asparagus beds by the lilacs and in the backyard, you know, at the far end of the backyard where if you cried out, you know, nobody could come and help you fast enough. It, it's it's that sort of of you know lurking fear and and this person is very charming and offers some wonderful things you know temptations that you know what kid could resist a a, a, a pedal car or whatever it happens to be and uh, I imagined this in the town where I spent my you know from age one to age seven which was in suburban Chicago. And uh, we had an asparagus bed and lilacs out at the back of the yard and it was a very deep yard. And, and I was afraid of strangers. You know, we don't, we don't call them, they're, they're, we call them strangers for a reason, they're strange. And we're afraid of strangeness. You know, there's a, a very dreamlike logic in this story and in many of the stories. I'm wondering, and you talk about your dreams in in the the essay or uh, autobi- somewhat autobiographical thing that finishes the book. It calls itself a memoir, but given that it's written in a similar manner to what everything that precedes it, it it's tempting to say that if that's a memoir, then the whole book is a memoir. Well, it kind of amounts to that. Yeah, it it's. I'm glad that the publisher decided to include that and use it as the title. He wanted to start with that essay. And I thought, well, most people buy collections of stories to read stories, and this is not exactly a story. I mean, it's written in the, what is it? It's written in the first person hysterical, I guess. Um, <laughs> and and I, I could mention too, I mean, I, I did the cover for John Waters' memoir. Uh, role model, mm-hmm. and uh, got a lot of attention for that. I, I I remember getting suddenly the phone calls starting to come when when he was on Stephen Colbert's show and mentioned my name, mentioned me my name, and said that he had hired an illustrator who drew like a eight, an eight year old neurotic, a neurotic eight year old, which I thought well. Yeah, that's kind of what these stories are. There's, there's, at, at, at whatever age it, it is, you suddenly emerge into the realization that the world is unreliable and the grown-ups who control it are, range from unreliable to dangerous. And you see them on television as soon as your parents let you stay up past eight o'clock when the serious dramas are on TV. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot to, to, to think about in these stories and they're kind of a they're they're playing with those emotions that we can remember from when we were more vulnerable because we're all still vulnerable to to those feelings you know I, I thought that 
the stories did a fantastic job at conveying that kind of sense of terror, the terror of the young child that always remains with us, even when we think we're grown up and, and beyond those kinds of terrors. And, and again, this gets at this idea of existential terror, mm. which I think is yes. really the the powerful and underlying current of everything in this book, in that we like to think we control our own thoughts, but as Mr. Vonnegut once put it, we are nothing yeah. but walking chemical reactions. <laughs> and we have about as much control over our thoughts as any chemical reaction has over whatever happens to it. We are like those little, those kind of funny little volcanoes that kids make for a science project. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they foam up and they happen and they're gone, but they don't, they seem like, you know, they're meant to be what they are, but within their own experience, if they had such a thing, and they may well, as far as we know, that they are, you know, they're born in fire and die in fire. Yeah. Well, here's the other thing, too. I mean, I talk about, we're talking about how, you know, the, the adults are danger, seem dangerous to children at some point. They realize that adults can be dangerous. The thing that I think you'll find in in most of the stories that the children are more adult than the than the grown-ups. The grown-ups are grown-up children. Uh, in the story Fugitive Joy, which I thought I would get, I might be canceled by a large part of the American reading public because it's such a misanthropic story told by a misanthrope. I mean, this 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 uh, the the narrator is is a psychopath. He's just, he's a narcissist and completely entirely selfish as, and and he's a parent and he's endangering these children with this sort of blithe innocence and, and self interest. And he's, he's got a charming voice, but he's, he's a horrible person. And the children meanwhile are unbelievably charming and forgiving. And, and they have, uh, such uh, um, what's the they're they're able to outmaneuver the narrator, and yet you know it ends with his completely self-interested thought. Um, I mean the other story, um, Lily Lily Piccadilly, is uh, about this woman. It's narrated by a woman whose child is far more enterprising and has more initiative than she has and is more grown up in how she makes her choices. But it's about how you know, you, you, you go, uh, there's a paragraph where I talk about how you drive along a road and, and you choose which you go this way, you go that way, and how you, how you choose determines how your life's gonna turn out. And it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of an interesting um, experiment. When I, I came up with that story, and I'm trying to remember what it exactly was the germ of that story, but I'll get an idea and I'll sit down at my uh, laptop and I'll, I should say typewriter or drawing or writing pad, but no, it's, it's a laptop. And I, and I essentially draw, write the stories in a matter of a couple of hours. And I just, I don't always know where they're going to end up. 
but I start with an idea or I start with with a phrase. I think in Lily Lily Piccadilly, I start with the phrase um, that one thing that my dad said to me when I was talking to some grownups at a at a lunch party or something like that. And he said, not everybody's as interested in that as you are. And, and so I started with that idea and it put me immediately back to that moment when I, I realized that the adults don't think very highly of what I'm talking about. And yet what I'm talking about is very important to me when I'm talking about it. And so this, this uh, narrator is kind of a, a childlike figure and her daughter is, is the adult in the relationship. So it, it also harkens back to uh, Ray Bradbury too, who, Oh yeah. I, I he, don't invoke him very often, but yeah, Ray Bradbury is a big influence. Well, he was an expert as are you at looking at the quietest, most unassuming suburbs and just evoking that kind of terror. I'm thinking of a story called The Small Assassin. I should look at his collections of stories again. I haven't for a while. Yeah, I always think, yeah, go ahead. Uh, in the October Country, this is a story okay. about uh, a doctor who re realizes that the infant that these uh, people who are new parents of is homicidal and trying to kill them and actually succeeds. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh gosh. I don't think I've ever read that story. If I have, I've blocked it out because it was too awful, but yeah, no, I, I remember reading uh, his novels, uh, you know, Dandelion Wine had those wonderful uh, episodes about the, the, the strangler in the town and uh, the same town was featured in uh, something wicked this way comes and which i thought was just absolutely riveting and i reread both of those books repeatedly more than i read the stories um it's it was my my uh fascination with stories came came later i was reading novels then and now i read more stories than i read novels you know uh there are so many wonderful quotes in this book just paragraphs that really stick with you and I'm, I'm just going to read you a brief one here you will come to the wrong place if you want any of it explained i was just a child i was ill as ill-equipped to keep them safe as they were to protect me it was a failure all around <laughs> <laughs> and, and i think this is this um gets at this kind of sense of terror that you're evoking, which I say is really unusual in the horror genre, which, you know, yeah. relies on monsters and other fears. And, you know, the, sometimes you'll get the, the authors who are good at, you know, evoking fears within ourselves. But you evoke the fear of reality itself. <laughs> yeah. Another thing is, is that my, I remember getting on this, onto these stories and starting to write them after having read um, Fancies and Good Nights, that collection of John Collier's stories that was published by New York Review Books. Mm -hmm. And you know, they're, they're a client of mine. I've designed book covers for them. And I read that, that collection just so quickly. And it was just each story made, made me want to write something like that, which is it's not that there's something specific that's menacing the narrator or, or menacing the main character. It's 
it's a situation or it's uh, uh, an inability to cope or it's karma. Um, another author I really like is M.R. James, uh, whose stories I discovered in college. Um, the in it's in his case, you know, there's there's you, it's it's the approach of the thing that's that you're afraid of more than the arrival of the thing that you're afraid of. And it, I remember, you know, when I read Robert Louis Stevenson, the first ch chapter in Treasure Island is the chapter I keep going back to and rereading. It's because nothing has happened yet and something is going to happen and it's the slow approach and each you're trying to determine, you know, like Jim Hawkins is which of these adults is the one that's going to kill me or endanger me. And <laughs> Jim Hawkins doesn't get killed, of course, because it's Robert Louis Stevenson. He would never do that, but it's, you know, uh, is it, is it the, the Captain Flint who seems really scary, but no, it's not Captain Flint. Is it the, you know, is it blind pew? Well, yeah, he seems really scary because he can't even see you and he's scary. You know, you, he's moved slowly and you're terrified of that. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's, it's also like in the movie Night of the Living Dead. The scariest scene in the movie is not, for me, isn't when there are monsters, zombies coming in through the doors and windows. It's the scene at the opening where these two young people are having this frivolous conversation in a cemetery and laughing at each other and teasing each other. And you see this character, this figure moving across the background at a very strange pace. And you're, you're scared of something that's that far away and moving very slowly, but there's something really scary about that because it's like when you're in a dream and you can't move, you're, you're transfixed and whatever's coming at you isn't moving fast, but you can't move at all. So it's, it's those kinds of, of fears of, fears of powerlessness and, 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 uh, and not knowing what it is that's coming after you. And I think too, that, uh, you know, it's interesting. You said that the publisher wanted to put the essay up front and, and I can understand why, <laughs> because um, it gives this cast to, and it's interesting that, that you have at the back because then it's like this giant mirror that slowly comes up and by the time the mirror is done coming up you can see yourself and it's the most terrifying thing in the entire universe to see well, there's something sort of uh i mean something uh, irrational about the way this narr the narrator of the of the memoir piece goes on the essay goes he goes on and on and on and you know i don't have i'm not paralyzed by those fears and i wasn't paralyzed by those fears but it was also the contradiction that there was absolutely nothing to be afraid of when I was a child. Today, there's a lot to be afraid of. And, and to back then, it was the existential fear of nuclear annihilation, which, you know, our leaders were rational enough. Even the leaders of our enemies were rational enough not to allow to happen. And today, I don't know that we can be that certain. Because, you know, it depends on which party is in power and, and what the personality is of the person that's in power. Is he a, is he a, a psychopath or is he, you know, kind of a, you know, a, a, a well-meaning and hardworking person that's trying to do right? It's, 
you you have these options and you see all these people around you choosing making bad choices and you are powerless to stop them that's that's scary and it's uh, that is existential and i i have a friend that that teaches existentialism in 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 a college nearby my my alma mater i should recommend the book because i don't know that i've recommended the book to him yet he might write a nice blurb on amazon for me you know um one of the things that that i found interesting was the way the um memoir strikes you and even the word memoir um it doesn't take a lot of uh you know, just a, a tiny juxtaposition of an eye, and and if you can go from memoirs to memories, mm, yeah, and, and that's the way that the stories early on strike us as kind of memories and fragmented in the way that memory memories are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I'd like you to talk about uh, this the memoir that finishes the book. Is it? You know, do you consider is this an excerpt from a longer memoir that you are writing, or is it? To me, it seemed as I when I encountered it at the end of all the stories, the prose and the approach was so much like all the stories. I thought, well, this is a piece of fiction, but it's got a lot of you know memory in that memoir, but it's the way it's presented is relatively terrifying. <laughs> Well, the thing about uh, the reason why I called it a memoir instead of autobiographical is um, memoir in, in embodies the unreliability of the narrator, that you're not necessarily telling facts, you're telling feelings, you're telling what your experience was, not what happened. And I mean, I, there's a certain amount of that, too. I mean, the, the, the episodes that I, I describe actually did happen. They, we always rewrite our memories as we get older, and sometimes it's with the assistance of the people we're telling them to over and over again at parties. It's just that the the uh, the fact that it's about these feelings, these feelings of dread. I started school at age four, and I was equipped for it in one respect that I just, I really wanted to go and I wanted to do these things. And I wanted to be with in the same class with my best friend and all of these things. But I was really little. I was, I was ill-equipped for a lot of that. What came after that, I had to walk a a very long ways down these uh, past all these scary houses where I didn't know any of the people that lived in them and walk all the way home for lunch and then walk all the way back and then walk all the way home. So I, I travel along these, these elm-lined streets of houses that were populated by strangers who would sometimes come out and yell at me for walking on their grass. Or, you know, or you'd encounter big kids that didn't mean, didn't wish you well. And so it was, it kind of set the stage for, for a lot of, of, of what I write about is, is he, there's this kid that's all by himself. Every, all of his friends have ridden their bikes to school, but I don't know how to ride a bike. <laughs> and so um, I'm helpless. And, and that feeling of helplessness is, is a wonderful uh, context for a story because we all feel helpless a lot of the time. And when you feel helpless, it's 
because you don't know what's going on and what you're doing with when you feel helpless you're filling in the world with the creatures and terrors of your imagination as you've been informed by those also uh, very unreliable narrators your parents well also kids i mean kids exaggerate so much i mean of course this the memoir piece is exaggerated because it's the memoir of a kid and everybody that was telling me about everything in school all of the older kids they exaggerated everything and they they were telling me partial truths in order to to play with me you know to manipulate me and you know and they they weren't they weren't psychopaths like all of the strangers living in those houses that, that I didn't know. No, they were just, they were my peers and they, they were just, you know, they, they bully you and they tease you and, and they maintain their place in the, in the pecking order by making sure that, that the people that are, are around them are off, off balance. And, and so, yeah, you spend a lot of your childhood off balance, not sure what's, What's going to happen next? And and you know, I, I don't talk about the great existential dread of childhood, which is that you know I forgot my homework at home or I forgot to do my homework. I mean, those are those are you know concrete worries. I talk about the the greater worry that back then that yeah I was going to be alone in the school and somebody was coming after me. And of course today, boy, you can be in school with all of your friends and all of your, all of the grownups to protect you. And you're still powerless because of the way our society is going these days. You know, that was a, a really powerful aspect. A part of that essay was when you talked about uh, guns and gun violence. And, and I thought you wrote really well about it because, and in fact, I think a, a lot, a lot of the power of this book comes from your comfort with your own discomfort <laughs> and, and your willingness to, to reveal that to us and also at the same time evoke that discomfort in ourselves and our discomfort with ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And I think that when you were talking about being afraid that, that one of the stories was going, you might be canceled and I can see how you might expect a fairly... Uh, unhappy reaction to said story. Nonetheless, I think that what those kind of stories do is they use the reader as a weapon to create fear within the reader. And that's a really, it requires a, a certain amount of skill and also kind of self-honesty to write that way. It, when you write, is there a lot of revision going on? Or does this pour out of your pen it seems it, it just it kind of i they, the stories tend to write themselves i don't revise very much that's the thing about stories I'm, i've been working on novels for years and it's i i rewrite and i rewrite and i rewrite and i rewrite because each part of the novel has to function alongside other parts and it's always a decision about what you reveal at what point whereas in a story you reveal it all or as much as you want to reveal within a few pages. And so the decisions are more easily made and the structure is more easily arrived at. And so these stories are fairly quickly written. I have a number that have not were not included in the collection. It took me longer 
And in some cases, it's because they were experiments in a certain style or because they were just longer stories. I mean, the, the long story that the audiobook, uh, The Last Adventure of the Blue Phantom, which was my more recent McSweeney story a while ago, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's more of a novella. And I spent a considerable amount of time writing it, but it was, it was set along a, a pattern that I knew ahead of time. And I, I got to the ending and I realized how to end it then. A lot of times these stories, I don't know exactly what the ending is, but it, bec- it emerges as the story goes along. Um, the idea for the ending of Fugitive Joy, which I was especially pleased with, you know, just kind of popped into my head as the, the kind of delighted realization that this kind of a narcissist would have and combining it with the sort of thing that, that, that anybody would say, you know, New England is lovely in the fall. And you realize that he's planning another one of his escapades and you just kind of, you kind of shake your head and you kind of go, where did that come from? I'm a very good parent. I would never do anything like this. My children know that I would never do anything like this. But part of part of what being an adult is, is teasing children. And it's important that when you're teasing them, that you make them complicit in that, that they know that you're not teasing them in the way, in a way to make them fearful or 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 wor- more worried. You're teasing them, you're teasing the worries out of them is the way I think of it. Um, when my daughter was, was uh, I shouldn't bring her into this. She has her own life and I, I should leave her alone. But I mean, when she was, you know, of you know, 12, 10, 8, 9, 10, I don't know. I don't know what age it was. I, I would, instead of reading to her at night, you know, we'd turn off the lights and I'd tell her a story. And I told her a series of stories about grownups and how horrible grownups are, you know, and she would, lie there and just kind of laugh at, you know, there's so imp- these improbable lies that I'm telling about, you know, well, when you're, when you were really little, as soon as you were in bed, you know, we would go, we would go to a nightclub. We'd leave, you know, leave the door open, you know, people came, could come and go as they please while you were upstairs asleep, you know, all these kinds of just insane lies that she would laugh at. And I put them together into a story Called, a children's book called The Terrible Truth About Grownups. And I submitted it to these art directors and I illustrated it and I submitted it to, you know, the people I knew at Knopf and Farrar Strauss and uh, Penguin. And, and, and uh, they all thought it was too horrible. No, we can't publish this. It's too horrible. And so, of course, you know, some of the best-selling children's books, not really for children, but for their their parents, some of the books that have been framed as children's books have been, you know, just horrible, you know, and, and maliciously told. Now, this one isn't maliciously told, but it's kind of a, a it's a tease. And, you know, I still, I hope it would get published someday, but I, I long ago given up on children's books. <laughs> Uh, Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, this book, I I can see in a sense this as being a a children's book in that it 
expert presents quite effectively for adults a child's vision of the terror of the world. It's like saying, Mom and Dad, you want to know what it's like to be around you? (laughs) Hmm. Well, what it is, too, is that the children in the stories, I mean, a lot of the stories are about children that are are in peril. It's a it's a the perfect frame for a scary story. And yet the children, as powerless as they are, they have agency. And oftentimes the thing that's scary is that the adults around them don't either don't have any agency, they're helpless, or they're va- or they're absent, or they're not paying attention. You know, and and that's that's the kind of thing that you know, I began to realize that was the thing that kind of made me, made me afraid. And, and, you know, I, it's just, it's, uh, this is a, what I will discover, I will, I will sit down with an old book of collected ghost stories and I'll read one of my stories in there told slightly differently. And I'll realize, yeah, somebody told the story already, the same story that I wrote in my collected in my book, but, you know, we're all kind of uh, collecting the same kinds of fears and putting them into slightly different narratives. Mine, I think, are different from the ones that inspired me uh, because, except for maybe Shirley Jackson, most of them are about adults. Most of the scary stories are about adults. I mean, there is that story about the the little boy on the road to Brighton. You know, there's a snowstorm and this man is walking to Brighton. Um, across Sussex and and hope he can, he can make make it there alive and he keeps coming across this little child. I'm remembering it vaguely, but and then he realizes it's a child that's died. And that's the kind of story I like where you realize what was scary, you didn't understand that this while you were reading it and it's only at the end that you realized just how scary it was. And in that story, it's the child is is already out of it. And it's the the adult that needs to be frightened. But then there's the story, uh, The Witch, that Shirley Jackson wrote, which is, you know, it's on a train and this little boy is talking to this nice old gentleman. And it's a terrifying story. It's much, I find it much scarier than The Lottery, you know, which is the one she's famous for. And, you know, you just brought to mind another Ray Bradbury story (laughs) for me. That that I think he is told from the point of view who has a a boy who has a fever, and mm. he doesn't un, he understands that the fever is something that's replacing him cell by cell. Mm. I have got I've got to dig up Ray Bradbury again. It's been years. So yeah, so yeah. Which which I'm curious to know which of the other stories really jumped out at you. Well, for for me, there was a, a the the story about the uh, the young girl. She's like four or five. Who? Oh, had, oh yeah, Candy Candyland. Candyland, yes. Who she has the agency and, and of an adult. And, yes, and I, I she was, is that is yeah. extremely terrorizing. So well, so talk so so. Talk about that. That was another one that seems to me when I read that, I thought, boy, this guy is just asking for trouble. Well, the thing that scared me about that was that, yeah, why did I get this idea? 
the idea basically, and I try to tell the story in a way that this, it's not like one of those bad cartoons that doesn't need a caption, but they had a caption anyway, is that this is a story about a 40 year old woman who wakes up in the body of a four year old child and how angry and frustrated she would be and how she would get out of this predicament. I mean, that's what these stories are, they're predicaments. And I wrote it as subtly as I could so that it wasn't, I didn't want it to be didactic. I wanted it just to be in the voice of this individual. And I got a, one reviewer thought it was monstrous to write about this little girl that's so fully sexualized at the age of four. I maybe could have included a footnote that's saying, this is not real, this is fiction, and this is not about a four-year-old, this is about a four-year-old, 40-year-old who imagines herself back into the body of a four-year-old. And it is a difficult topic, but I think it's a successful story. Um, it's also, my editor didn't find any problem with it, and it was, I think it was published in the New York Tyrant or in Vice magazine, I never got a copy. They were going to publish it. I'm not sure what happened, but yeah, I mean, there are people out there that that found it interesting. And I suppose it's the provocation of a story that sometimes makes it successful. And so there are certain risks you take. But I, you know, I'm I am not a member of the the vast you know, liberal cabal of pedophiles operating out of a pizza restaurant basement in Washington, D.C. No, uh, I, it, that, that cabal does not exist. The cabal is actually very different from that. And this story is not about that. It's about this homicidal, in, uh, you know, uh, preschooler. And uh, I think I chose the age of four because that was the age I left, I left the safety of home and went off to kindergarten at a, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's that tipping point between being safe in this one environment and being sent off into this cruel world. And so I, in some ways I was probably playing with that by placing it. Then I placed it not in the, the, the uh, landscape of, of that suburb and you know, from from that age, I placed it in this another suburb I lived in later, where there's, you know, these uh, ramblers. How are, the houses are these '50s ramblers with with small trees and large lawns, and and uh, it's it's I I think of a place and I think of a predicament and I think of a character and I write the story. And that's that one. I was surprised at where it went, and everything that she does was me as this thinking through the thoughts of a, of a 40 year old woman, what would I do? What can I do in this situation to gain power over this situation where I am at the, in the, in the completely at the mercy of this grown up that I'm with. And that episode with the cab driver just scared me to death. I mean, he was poor guy. He was helpless. Uh, it, it, it's really terrifying. And you know, there's a you have a story in here called insurance. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody it, must have written that story before me, but it, yeah. Well, I'd like you to to talk about that. My my dad worked in insurance, 
and I've always wondered about insurance just seems as a concept seems somewhat crazy. Well, the thing about insurance is there's so many um, contradictions and I, you know, I'm, I have insurance, you have to, mm-hmm. you know, it's what makes you, uh, you know, you, you, how do you want to, you, well, you how do you want to get credit? You get, you use credit, then you have good credit. If you use credit wisely, if you're insurable, that means you're a good risk. That means, I mean, in the in some way, you know, whoever's insuring your life has an interest in making sure you you stay alive so they don't have to pay off. And exactly. so the idea that canceling your insurance policy has other repercussions was something that occurred to me. And I thought, oh, yeah, I mean, there's there's probably a guy for the insurance company that goes out, not the insurance investigator who checks for fraud in, in insurance claims, but the guy who, 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 uh, asserts the rights of the insurance company when those irresponsible people cancel their insurance. And I thought it was kind of funny. And I, you know, it was, it gave me a chance to get out of the city and there was somebody out on the road in this story. And, and uh, so he was running away from what he was running away from and they will always find you. And so that was, that was kind of want to tell how it ends exactly. But I had a lot of, a lot of fun with that. And the, the voice of the insurance guy, I found fun, very fun to write in because he was remorseless. You know, <clears throat> several of the stories in this book um, operate on the logic of dreams, I think. And, yeah. and they seem highly informed by dreams. Do you write from your dreams? Do you write your dreams down? Do you remember your dreams? I remember some. I mean, you know, you remember the sort of the in the, in general terms you remember certain kinds of dreams and the degree of powerlessness you felt because you remember the ones that are afraid you make you made you afraid after you woke up. I mean, the way I've, I've written and I write a lot of essays. I, I, I'm the book I'm collecting now to, to is the, the, the collected essays of a writer you've never heard of, which I think is a very promising title and it would fly off the shelves. But one of them is, 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 uh, um, just about, where was I? There's the idea that, that uh, it's the fear that causes you to remember something. It's, it's, the, it's the adrenaline in a moment that causes you to remember a specific moment. You remember that 15 seconds in the moguls on Riva Ridge or wherever you were. I used to be a ski rider. You remember, I remember my, my races in the slalom because I was terrified, always. And you remember moments of peril from your childhood because of the adrenaline. And you also remember, you know, the 80-yard run that, you know, when Shaw describes in that short story, you know, the idea that your moments of greatness and your moments of powerlessness give you jolts of adrenaline to equal become equal to the moment that you're in and it also fixes those memories in your head and in your memory so so yeah it's it's that's kind of that's kind of the idea is that yeah i mean i i remember certain kinds of dreams and i remember the shapes of certain kinds of dreams that dream about the school from the memoir that that fear of the of being in the school and somebody and hiding under the teacher's desk and feeling that finger pressing into the small of my back 
is one of the scariest dreams that I can remember. I remember another dream where I witnessed a, a large airliner crashing and that after it crashed, the pieces of it reassembled themselves out of the, out of the wreckage into this giant robot that started turning slowly towards me and walking in my direction. I mean, boy, that's, that's on what is that Iron Man? What movie is that? That's already been made into a movie about 50 times. I mean, it's just, so the illogic of dreams have a lot, they have a logical illogicality. They have a, they're, they're unreasonable and you try to reason with them by telling stories, about shaping, shaping them into stories. And so it's good material, certainly, but uh, it's the way they, you know, I told about, excuse me, the, uh, in Pillbeam, you know, how I made a, I made a point of changing the subject every few sentences. That's how dreams work too. Exactly. That's, that's when I, my, um, that was a story I thought that was a fantastic example of dream logic. And something you said just really uh, interested me. One thing I think that's true of humans in general is that we're a storytelling species and mm -hmm. we define ourselves by our stories. If I ask you to tell me who you are, you're going to tell me a story, probably a fairly terrorizing one. No, no, I think I, I, th I tend to bore my audiences by retelling stories endlessly. I'm glad I'm usually with my wife when that happens. She says, no, yeah, they, we've heard that. <laughs> but anyway. But, but the, the point being what you said, I thought that was very interesting that um, fear generates a strong memory. Yes. And so when we put together our stories uh, out of the memories, there are just connecting different points of fear and, and which is recast why you can tell somebody like you who understands this uh, can tell almost any story and turn it into a horror story. Even if, you know, nobody's threatened, nobody's taken away in a black car, which you talk about. Yes. <laughs> um, oh, boy. Black <laughs> sedans. My gosh. Black sedans. Uh, you know, even if that nothing happens, it's still a terrorizing story because it's grounded in the points of fear. You're connecting the dots like uh, constellations between points of fear. Well, and everybody has these moments or these these nuggets in their these points in their own memory where they were afraid of something. And if there's recognition, then that part of the story is successful you know, the plotting and the, and the descriptions and, and the characters, that's, that's extraneous. But if you capture them with, by making the, the, the germ of the story, something that they can relate to, that's, that's very helpful. I mean, you know, in, in, in uh, I'm trying to think which, which other story, yeah, the horror, horrible old, the whole playmate that, she runs, it's a woman in Billy Shaw's. That's also a female narrator. I don't know if it's clear from the narration, but it's Billy Shaw's is somebody she, she knew when she was a child and she never, never trusted him. And, and he died. She knew he had died, but here he was big as life. And she falls into his, into his uh, plots and, and part becomes complicit in what he's doing. In some ways she agrees with what he's doing 
in terms of what class struggle or 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 envy or or whatever it is or resentment and yet there's something she's powerless to resist and uh, i i've never in, engaged in any of those behaviors myself but you kind of wonder what kinds of situations have i been spared what kinds of situations was i never pulled into and that's why you know the conventions of society are so you know wonderful and reliable and hopeful and sustaining is because you don't get pulled into these things but the fantasy part of it is also it it um, reinforces the things that you understand about what the way you should behave. I remember watching a movie with my son when he was quite young, and it was a it was a film noir of some kind. I exposed him to film noir at a at a, a I was probably a bad parent because he was quite young, but he understood this, and he also was a very moral child, and he's a very moral adult. Um, but he said. That character, he never would have done that. He knew better than to open that door and go in without his gun in his hand. Or, you know. But I said to him, it is the job of the hero to do the wrong thing. Because if you don't do the wrong thing, there's no story. And so in some ways, you're working out, you know, if I had done that, where would I be? You know, if I'd been in a situation where I didn't, you know, if I'd gone to a, a gunfight, you know, carrying a typewriter instead of a gun, you know, where would I be? If I'd gotten into a situation where I didn't have enough money, what would I have done? Would I have walked out on the check? There's all these sorts of predicaments that stories help us, you know, work them through. And in, in a lot of ways, it's just there's a kind of there's a pleasure in, in telling those stories, and I hope there's the same pleasure in, in, in reading them. The new book by Eric Hansen is What I Was Afraid Of. Thank you for joining me, Eric. It's a pleasure, and uh, I, I'm going to go look up some of those, story, those other stories and books that we talked about because uh, there's, there's a lot to read out there. But thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.